Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. This week, we have a conversation with author Pankaj Mishra about his new novel, Run and Hide, which, as we'll get into during the interview, is actually his first novel in 20 years. He's been primarily known for a long time as a nonfiction writer, usually literary criticism and political essays. So this was like a very interesting return to form. Yeah. And I mean, I think as listeners will find out that many of the issues that this novel grapples with, like globalization, the rapid changes that have happened in countries like India in terms of economic growth are all in this novel. So a lot of the work that Pankaj Mishra sort of delves into in his nonfiction work is very much present here. Yeah. And that's like one of the things he talked to us about is the reason he returned to the novel is because he felt like he had kind of reached the end of the road and what he could do with his nonfiction writing, which I thought was interesting just in terms of the the kind of possibilities that the novel affords for talking about things in the real world. It's true. Maybe we should let him let him just tell us about it. Yeah, let's do it. Pankaj Mishra on the line with us today. Pankaj is a noted writer whose work across a range of topics in political journalism, literary criticism, and fiction often centers on questions of globalization and its complex, far-reaching effects on identity and culture. His writing has appeared in The Guardian, The New York Review of Books, The New York Times, The New Yorker, and many other publications. He joins us today to talk about his new novel, Run and Hide, which takes up many of the themes explored in his political nonfiction. Narrated by Aaron, a literary translator, the book explores the lives of Aaron, two of his friends from college, and Aaliyah, a woman with whom he has an impactful romance, as they all grapple with the moral and emotional scars they carry with them in the midst of their rapidly transforming status as wealthy, successful entrepreneurs and intellectuals carried along during an era-defining wave of economic globalization. Their story, as Run and Hyde frequently points out, is also the story of modern India, a country in which the rapid changes upending centuries-old iniquities bear boons and costs with which all four characters must grapple. Pankaj, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, there for having me. Pankaj, I guess we should start by talking about the fact that it's been a while since you've written a novel, right? You're a prolific writer of kind of political and literary critical essays. So can we just open up by talking about both why you chose to return to the novel form, which I think you haven't published a novel in 20 years, so quite some time, nearly a generation. So kind of why you return to the form and what you like about it. I always wanted to be a novelist. And, you know, I thought sort of I'd fulfilled at least some of my ambition by publishing my first novel 20 years ago. And then, you know, this was in 2000. The following year, this horrible atrocity happened, 9-11. And there was certainly a great demand for writers from my part of the world to make sense of what was going on in various societies across Asia. So I found myself in this role of writing essays, reportage, journalism, you know, explaining what was going on in these societies. And then, of course... My curiosity grew. I was commissioned to do different things. I started to travel a lot. I went to China, started to go to China very regularly. And, you know, suddenly I was doing quite a wide range of work. And before I knew it, 20 years had 
past and I was nagged by a feeling of frustration <laughs> that I hadn't really quite done what I had set out to do and that the novel form, which is really an incredibly spacious, democratic form, that was the form best suited to me, best suited to my training, and that I had actually not really done enough with nonfiction. And in fact, I'd come to the end of my material with nonfiction. And so mm. that prompted me to you know, think about writing a novel again, using some of the same material, because where else the material is going to come from? It's going to come up from my experience, but that experience has to be looked at differently. I have to go deeper, much, much deeper than I could in my nonfiction. So that's how it started really about three years ago. I'm really struck by you saying you felt like you had come to the end of your nonfiction subject. What do you mean by that? Well, I think I'd come to the end of a certain kind of writing about them, perhaps mm -hmm. not the end of the subjects, but I felt that I'd come to the end of what I could say about those subjects, whether the transformation of Asia, whether the arrival of unimaginable prosperity in different parts of India, that whatever I wanted to say about these things, I had reached the end of those things in my nonfiction. And I had to turn to fiction in order to talk about, in order to explore more complex things, in order to raise a different set of questions, which could not be raised in nonfiction without, you know, seeming impertinent or simply, you know, dishonest. Because you can't talk about the inner lives of people in nonfiction beyond a point. You can't speculate about how people feel or think when they undergo these massive transformations, you're working with a set of facts, with a set of empirical facts, and you're weaving a narrative around those facts. And the narrative has to stick close to the facts. You can't depart too much from those facts. Whereas fiction gives you an incredible amount of freedom to go wherever you want to, to do whatever really you wish to imagine characters, base them on people you've known in the past or, you know, create composites of people you've known in the past, bring them all together in one character. And, you know, also explore your own self, explore your own alternative selves, hypothetical selves. We all live with a multiplicity of selves and nonfiction only really expresses one or two of them. Well, so this book, it brings the reader back to India and to a set of characters who are entering a college and they are of a lower caste and they are quickly adjusting to what it might mean to enter a different kind of social world. And that allows you to later really discuss and get into the many ways in which globally, politically, these are big changes, not just personally in their lives. And I was wondering about that return to that place. What was it like for you to go back there and to think about these questions in such a different in the context of these characters' lives? Well, yes. You know, I think what really, in a way, defines the lives of many people of my generation, and, you know, we're talking here about hundreds of millions of Indians and hundreds of millions of Chinese people, is that they've made this extraordinary transition from extreme poverty, extreme restitution, to lives of unimaginable prosperity, prosperity just never before imagined or anticipated by their parents or their grandparents. And this has all happened very quickly and very dramatically in the last two, two or three decades or so. And what I really wanted to know is what effects does this transformation have on the inner lives of people? You can see very clearly that 
here are people getting richer and richer. They go to an engineering college, which incidentally produces a lot of people occupying senior positions in Silicon Valley tech companies. This is the Indian Institute of Technology, which is you know famous for sending some of its brightest graduates to the United States, who then go on to run hedge funds, banks, and now increasingly tech companies. So for many Indians, this college, this engineering institute is the portal to the world's richness. They want to desperately get into it because they know that once they get into it, their future is assured, a future of stability, a future of prosperity is guaranteed to them. So there's a lot of competition to get into these colleges. And for people from disadvantaged castes and classes, there is a special let's say, anxiety there, because that is really one way of breaking out of destitution that not only you, but several generations of your family have suffered. And with one act of will, you can break out of all that, lift your entire family, lift your extended family, bring them to this place of stability, if not wealth. So I think we are looking at teenagers essentially carrying enormous burdens on their shoulders, in their minds when they go to these colleges. You know, China, again, has a similar phenomenon of people being trained from a very young age to get into a proper educational institution. And they are made to carry all the decades of hopes and aspirations of their parents and grandparents. Along those lines, there's also a through line in the book, I mean, V.S. Naipaul's work is, and specific quotes from his novels are cited frequently as part of this, I guess we could say like a transformative mythology, right? So a lot of the book is about this romance of, I think, a transformative individualism. So Naipaul appears, you also have references to Gatsby, but as in many of those books also, I mean, especially I'm thinking of Gatsby, the transformation that so long desired ends up being a kind of a Pyrrhic victory or a prison in and of itself. And can you talk a little bit about that dilemma for your characters? In particular, I'm thinking of Virendra and, well, Asim seems to more get along with it, but Virendra particularly. Well, it's, I think especially difficult for people who have been damaged very badly in their youths, in their childhoods by caste and class hierarchies. Mm who can never really get rid of those injuries, those deep scars, that a life of destitution and a life of shame, really. I think shame is very important in these contexts. The shame of not knowing how to dress, how to speak English properly, how to sit at a table, at a dining table, how to be with other people. All of these sort of little humiliations that accumulate over the years and become a source of great torment for people. And, you know, they can't get rid of them even when they become wealthy, even when they become rich. They're constantly haunted by feelings of deep inadequacy and humiliation. So I, I wanted to show how social mobility, however fast it may be, and it has indeed been extremely fast for these characters and for many people, it still not is the answer to the injuries inflicted early on by a horribly cruel social system, a horribly cruel hierarchy. Not so much the case with the character in The Great Gatsby, not so much the case in many other novels that describe people emerging from modest backgrounds and going on to become successful. But there is something 
particularly oppressive about the combination of class and caste in India, something very insidious and very, very oppressive, which really does mark people for their lives. It's very, very difficult to get rid of those injuries. It's interesting to hear you talk about shame because part of the the flip side of some of the shame that these characters experience is ambition. They're quite driven and the main character partly, (laughs) this is a reference to the title, but runs and hides from the kind of ambition that they experience. And I was wondering if you could talk about those two feelings and how they might correlate with each other. And maybe even if you feel comfortable talking about your own experience with, with something like shame and ambition. Ambition, and that's why Naipaul is important in the book, because, you know, to answer Eric's question or to bring Eric's question into this discussion, Naipaul offered the idea, a very attractive idea of how you can fulfill your ambition if you work hard enough. And, you know, not uncoincidentally, this was also what was being proposed to us by the political classes back in the 80s and 90s, you know, this ideology of individualism, you know, which obviously has deeper roots in American society. But in the 90s and the 2000s, it became a universal ideology whereby all we had to do was to pursue certain ambitions, bring you know, hard work into play, and a meritocratic society that was emerging universally was going to reward us for our ambitions. And sort of, you know, this is how societies will grow prosperous through this kind of, as Eric put it, transformative individualism. Now, I think it's become very clear, especially in the last 10 years, especially in the last decade or so, that first of all, very few people can actually fulfill the ambitions that they set out with early in their lifetimes. And then even those who do fulfill their ambition, that's something I wanted to explore because I've always written about people who are left behind in the race for prosperity and status and their humiliations and how they are fueling the political toxic energies of our times. But I'd not really written at any length, about people who actually became the beneficiaries of three decades of hectic globalization of these ideologies of individualism. So this is really what the novel tries to explore, is that you can fulfill all your wildest ambitions. You can buy mansions in New York and the Hamptons, fly around in private jets, and yet you're haunted by feelings of personal inadequacy. Something is always missing, something gnawing away at you, a lack, something that you feel you've left behind in the past or a past that you've betrayed. All these very involved, very complicated feelings of confusion and self-betrayal. And not to mention, you know, the world around you is falling apart as you pursue your ambitions. So the narrator of the novel, I mean... I think in the end, that's the conclusion he's forced to by his experiences, that actually all he can do is run and hide as this world of ambition and achievement suddenly reveals this sort of enormous reservoir of resentment and loathing that conceal all along and all kinds of demagogues emerge in India, in the UK, wherever you go. And all you can do is run and hide. And even running and hiding is not really an option for many people. That is also a kind of conclusion he reaches. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Pankaj Mitra, author of Run and Hide. 
We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. Claire Louise Bennett on the line with us today. Her new book is called Check Out 19. It's a novel. And she is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Claire Louise, what book are you going to recommend? The book I'm recommending is called Letters to Gwen John by Celia Paul. It's on my list. It's on my virtual nightstand where it shouldn't be because I haven't read it. But tell me about it. So I've got a little bit to go. I haven't finished it entirely, but I read it over the weekend. Uh, There was a really big storm here over the weekend and I stayed in bed with it. And it was just really the best thing to be tucked up with. It's an epistolary novel um, made up of letters that Celia Paul has written to Gwen John. They're both artists. Gwen John was born in uh, Wales, I think in about 1876. And Celia Paul is a living British artist. I think she's in her maybe late 50s, early 60s now. Celia Paul is writing to her because she feels certain kind of parallels and affinities with uh, Gwen John. They're both painters. They both paint portraits, a lot of portraits of women. They have a particular style where there's, I don't know, a number of, I guess, similarities. There's a simplicity there, but a kind of a, I don't know, really beautiful profundity to their work. They're incredibly striking pieces. But also what they have in common is that they were both involved with, with men, eminent male artists, and that association obscured or in some way uh, overshadowed to some degree their own achievement and talent. So Gwen John was involved with Rodin and her brother, uh, Augustus John, was like a really successful painter as well. So she, in order to, I suppose experience some independence and and get out of the shadow, I suppose, of her brother. She went to uh, Paris and she spent some time in Paris and she paid her way by modelling for for, um, artists and that's how she met Rodin. And Celia Paul was involved with Lucien Freud when she was like really young. I think she was like 18. She was at college when she she met him or he, you know, whatever way it worked. So that's like a kind of a connection that they have. And I just love the way that Celia Paul writes about those experiences and writes about how she has protected her, I suppose, her creative power and how solitude is absolutely central to what she does. And she lives alone and she's always lived alone all her adult life. She did have a son, uh, I think sometime in the 80s, early 80s, and he was brought up by her mother. And she... That's a very big decision to, to take. And she's lived in the same flat near the British Library for almost 40 years now, I think. And it's a very austere sounding place. There's very little uh, comforts in there or personal effects. So it's, it's kind of interesting, this world that she's created for herself in order to, to work. So and I've, I've loved it. It's, it's beautifully written. It's hard to explain. She doesn't analyse or she doesn't, there's no, there's never any recrimination towards anybody. I mean, she met Lucien when she was 18. I think he was in his 50s. Um, never anything particularly about whether that was right or wrong. You know, I mean, and things have been said and will continue to be said about that. And I, I found it interesting that she doesn't, she doesn't really go there. Mm. But at the same time, it feels like an incredibly honest book. It's very hard to articulate, isn't it, sometimes when a book really strikes you. 
it can be as and like I said, I, I still I read it just at the weekend and I've still a little way to go. So it's very fresh, I suppose. I haven't really processed it, maybe. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? It's called Letters to Gwen John and it's by Celia Paul. Thank you so much. We have been speaking to Claire Louise Bennett. Her new novel is called Checkout 19. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Pankaj Mishra, author of Run and Hide. You know, it's very interesting to be reading your novel at the present moment, because, you know, just as as, as you were kind of intimating, the world itself has dramatically changed. Obviously, that's something that you've covered in, in your own journalism for decades. But right now, obviously, as we're talking, Russia has invaded Ukraine, and we're suddenly back into a kind of world war situation that we haven't been in in decades. And I think that sometimes, you know, it's so interesting, these kind of more 19th century literary themes, right, of the transformative individualism of the kind of early 20th century Gatsby-esque ethos. I mean, part of what that relies on is not just the kind of, you know, there is the spiritual decay that you're documenting in the book, but it's also kind of, what does it matter if you have taken the world if all that you're left with is just a dust heap, you know? And I I wonder how kind of you think about that as, as a super astute political thinker, but also how that is refracted through, I think, the kind of more or less depressive mode that you're, at, at the very least, are in, but I think also Asim and Varendra kind of have to navigate the world. You know, I mean, I think um, I've always been interested in writing about the losers of history, not Mm -hmm. the winners. Uh, The winners, that has been done over and over again by so much of Western journalism, so much of um, Western novelists have focused on that and the sadness that comes from, you know, living in in one of the richest societies in the world, you know, one writer after another, whether John Cheever or Saul Bellow, uh, they have described that particular spiritual situation. Mm-hmm. I've always been interested in looking at the world the way the losers of history see it, who want to be part of the world, who want to also have access to the richness, the sweetness of the world. And that's why I've been interested in in uh, societies in Asia. I've been very interested in in Russia uh, right from the time I was I was a teenager. I was exposed to uh, Russian writing through the Soviet Union at the at that point. And uh, Russia seemed to me, in many ways, a society which had experienced many of these uh, psychological complexes of humiliation uh, before the West, feeling of shame before the West, a feeling of wanting to catch up with the West, to beat the West at its own game, something that um, the Chinese are now doing, uh, the Japanese tried to do, uh, the Indians are now trying to do. And this creates a very peculiar psychological complex. I'm talking not just about individuals, but I'm talking about how societies conceive of themselves and how individuals and societies conceive of their place in the world. So if you're always on the margins, if you're always, you know, on the outside looking in and the action is all, action is all really in the West, in the rich, affluent, prosperous, stable West, you're constantly 
looking at it with feelings of envy, with a sense of inferiority. And I think we've reached a point where, yes, some of these societies have managed to catch up to a certain extent with uh, Western Europe and, 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 and America. But it was all happening at a time when we are faced with uh, all kinds of global crises, whether it's economic or environmental or political, all combined, whereby the rise of China or the rise of India, Russia never really rose. They all, you know, in, in a way, turn into these sort of hollow victories. Because what is this world that you want to inherit? What is this world that you want to dominate? And that's a question, you know, facing many, many people in India or China. As I say, you can become very rich, but if you're living in a highly dysfunctional world, racked by completely demented wars or dictators like uh, like Putin, then you know, really, uh, I mean, in in that sense, what is this narrative of the of the rise of Asia, or indeed the the rise of non-white peoples, uh, the the political assertiveness? I mean, obviously. You know, so many historical narratives have to be corrected, and 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 so many. So there's so much in history that we've suppressed or ignored. Uh, but when you take a broader look at what does it mean for this transfer of power to take place from the West to other parts of the world, what exactly is being transferred? Um, I think we all find ourselves more or less in the same boat, uh, up against very severe, against a very severe crisis. And, you know, the Russia-Ukraine invasion, I I, I fear, is only one of the many symptoms of this. Um, And that's, you know, we'll probably be heading into a very treacherous time in that sense. Um, So, I mean, I think, you know, this novel really does come out of a long period of reflecting on these things without, you know, taking one side or other without uh, ever thinking that the West has all the answers or or, or Asia has all the answers. It's, it's really looking at where we have been going for the last 20, 30 years and also realizing that journalism has been, in that sense, intellectually uh, deeply inadequate in, 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 in failing to anticipate any of this that we have experienced over the last five, six years. And again, you know, that's why I turned to the novel because I felt that what I was doing was simply not up to the task of describing this complex world that we are living in today. Even with the Ukraine thing, all we are, are we are, you know, basically listening, hearing right now is a kind of reheated Cold War uh, rhetoric. Um, you know, there is no attempt at a broader understanding of just why Putin, for instance, has turned to neo-imperialism. Uh, why can't we see also something like this happening elsewhere? We saw Turkey turning to neo-Ottomanism. We saw a, a turn to empire in 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 or imperial imperialist rhetoric even in China we've seen this in India Russia is not the only place that's doing it uh, why is it all happening but you know uh, we 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 fall back on uh, familiar reflexes when something like this happened and that's why journalism really has become not only very inadequate I think it's become in that in one sense uh, dangerously misleading and kind of also. Uh, in a way, I mean, I think it serves really to infantilize people more and more. And, you know, again, uh, you, you you said early on that I could um, curse uh, in uh, during the program and the radio will bleep it, but the podcast will carry it as it is. But one could curse at great length about, you know, the kind of people who are writing for mainstream periodicals today, people who have been complicit in every kind of moral, military, 
economic disaster over the last two, three decades. And there they are, you know, saying the same things over and over again about Ukraine, about the Cold War. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's actually, you know, deeply frustrating to hear this uh, and to watch this happen over and over again and to realize that, you know, in one sense, intellectually, we are at a dead end here. Uh, and that, I mean, you know, I certainly need to do something else at this point. It struck me reading the book that one of the complexities that um, that also perhaps journalism doesn't quite cover is the role of sex within this this kind of transformation, which is maybe sort of a, a, a left turn here. But as you were talking, it strikes me that the beginning of this book, there's when the main characters um, arrive at university, there's a there's a sort of wielding of power by the older upperclassmen that manifests itself as sexual assault. The three characters are forced to perform sexual acts on each other. And later on with a theme in particular, you know, sex comes up over and over again and with Arun as well in, in a very different way. And I was wondering what, how you think of the role of sex and maybe sexual power within all this, because I think, I'm not sure that the, that that has really been explored that much, actually. No, it has. I mean, I think you know what we have uh, uh, explored, and you know, quite uh, quite rightly, and you know, there should be more of that. Is the way sexual abuse and sexual violence of various sorts has gone on unchecked and even actually encouraged by the culture at large um, in 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 many ways. We we only begin to reckon with just how pervasive. Uh, a, a misogynistic culture has been, uh, you know, within journalism, uh, the, the the kinds of people who are now disgraced, who were once written up as, you know, great dandy figures and, you know, stylish figures and so on and so forth. So I think there's been a lot of tolerance of uh, completely unacceptable behavior for a very long time, because I think it is because sexual ambition, sexual ostentation has been fatally uh, linked with this fantasy of power, uh, this fantasy of power that we were all meant to be pursuing, uh, if it means power over a, a, a female or a, or, a, or, a, or a weaker person, uh, a, a young boy in the in the case of the first chapter in in in, in my book, uh, yes. But I think what is being exercised here is power, and sex or sexual abuse or sexual violence becomes a way of expressing this fantasy, of realizing this fantasy of, of power that you think is perfectly legitimate because it's legitimated by the culture around you. Everyone is telling you this is this is what you should be pursuing. So I think in that sense, you know, we, we've gone a bit backwards here uh, because I think even the kind of, in, in places like India, uh, the respect for women that came from a somewhat conservative culture uh, whereby women, you know, were to be respected because of the status they had in, you know, and uh, in, in in sort of Hindu legends or Hindu epics or the symbolic space they occupied. Even that was all lost. Uh, so the little bit of protection women had from a conservative culture was also uh, uh, destroyed. For you know, and 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 one reason why there has been such a horrific rise in sexual violence against against women in in places like India, you know, kind of as we as we wind up here, I I want to think about, and this is part of it, these for Aaron, who's our narrator, 
kind of um, writing to Aliyah, who, and, and we should also say that Aliyah, one of the characters in Asim, are also trying to do effectively what the book is trying to do, which is to write about the experiences of these characters and try to make some sense of their experience. But one of the things that strikes me about Aaron is he kind of has nowhere to go. He he has uh, kind of spiritually, emotionally, in, in terms of a, a longer quest for satisfaction and whatever we might want to call fleetingly happiness. You know, he tries the um, the Inst- Indian Institute of Technology, the transformative individualism. That's not really for him. Um, <clears throat> you know, it does get him certain benefits, of course. But then he is like, okay, well, I don't want to do what my two friends are doing, which is taking advantage of the more global economy and the fluidity of it and the possibility for cash grabs. Um, I'm going to retreat to the Himalayas <laughs> with my mom and translate, you know, kind of obscure fiction. Right, so he creates cultural capitalism to his, to himself, and that's kind of the another type of romance. And then we have his kind of, and I won't spoil anything for for listeners, but his romance with Aaliyah is another kind of uh, way in which you might see yourself as being rescued. You know, being with someone, finding love, finding actual connection. And it seems to me that Aaron never really finds something that's a sustainable reservoir or location in which happiness can flourish. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, what are we left kind of to do with characters whose sheer force of will reordered their worlds and their lives, but has failed to yield them any kind of lasting peace? You know, I think romance and, and, and you know, the experience of love for many, many people is obviously the release from feelings of humiliation or various complexes mm. uh, that you've suffered uh, from the time you were a child and were abused uh, or just had a very terrible you know life uh, you know pursued by your by your father and his ambitions forced into doing things that you never really wanted to do uh, so someone like Arun and I've known many people like that in my life uh, who just kind of go through life early life doing stuff that their parents asked them to do. And then um, find themselves really in a, in, a, in a very false position. Sometimes they escape, sometimes they don't. In this case, Arun does make his escape. He goes to the hills. Uh, he starts, as you say, uh, working for uh, working as a as a translator. Um, but you know, he is a damaged person. Uh, and and what I wanted really to to describe is how does the world look to someone who's emotionally damaged in that way? And what does the experience of love mean for him? It comes to him very late, but it comes to him as a kind of calamity. And it draws him back to the world that he thinks he has left behind. Uh, So, you know, from his place in the Himalayas, he moves to uh, 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 UK with this very young, very attractive, rich uh, uh, woman. It turns out that, you know, He's, he doesn't really know anything about her world. And what he does come to know uh, of this world of, you know, rich people, uh, left-wing, liberal in, in, in their politics, but in the end, very, very privileged people. And there's no way he can get along with them uh, because he finds uh, their political perspectives uh, not really grounded in any experience or known reality. Uh, so even the experience of love turns out to be a, a source of disappointment for him. 
Um, so this is, you know, this is something I really wanted to uh, explore is just, you know, what what does even love mean? And I think that is, you know, some of the more kind of intimate pages in the book are devoted to this uh, relationship, this fragile relationship of love between uh, this this older middle aged man and his and his and his younger girlfriend uh, and the things that start to uh, go 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 wrong in it. But, you know, he's in the end, he's simply unable to overcome uh, all the various psychological complexes uh, that his caste, his class, and his peculiar upbringing have saddled him with. Maybe lastly, um, we can talk a little bit about the the striking frame of this book, because much much of the book is dedicated to, as you you mentioned earlier, sort of correcting correcting a narrative. Um, correcting a narrative that had come before and and potentially rewriting it and re and editing sort of as you as as you talk through it and I wonder I mean I I I, I think this connects back to our earlier conversation but I I wonder why why you focus so much on that as as a clear um, well I mean so one of the things I wanted to do uh, was to also talk about journalism you know Alia the mm-hmm. person to whom uh, Arun addresses the book or the or the narrative. His girlfriend, uh, she's a journalist who's uh, writing a book about um, the financial scandals uh, involving Arun's friends, and uh, I felt very much that that kind of book. And I've read several of those kinds of books uh, about you know people involved in financial scandals. They don't go deep enough. So the fact that she's writing this book and then something terrible, which I don't want to disclose, happens to her. These are uh, the two things that force him to essentially write his own book and to explain to Alia all the things she missed in their lives, in the lives of Aaron and the lives of his friends. Uh, and also, it's a it's a confession. It's a confession of just how wrong he has been, uh, the ways in which his life has gone wrong. And you know, in, ma- in many ways, this this device was very useful to me because if you actually set out to describe uh, novelistically three decades in the lives of three friends, it'll be very difficult technically to confine it to three hundred pages or so. But by uh, making Arun address the narrative to Alia, the things that she does not know, uh, that Alia does not know. Uh, so we could cut through all the scene setting or, you know, explanations. This book is simply addressed to someone who's being told about the things that happened, the things that she didn't pay enough attention to, the things that she missed, and the things that are important. So I could, you know, sort of really cut through this 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 very formidable, very forbidding mass of three decades and events and, you know, what happens and, you know, how do you then advance the narrative? And so it was a very, uh, for me personally, it was a very nifty uh, device. Thank you so much, Pankaj, for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was good fun. We've been speaking with Pankaj Mishra. His new novel is called Run and Hide. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. 
Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Mm-hmm.